Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. This week we welcome Dr. Jim O'Connell, founder of Boston Healthcare for the Homeless, featured in the new New York Times bestseller by Tracy Kidder, Rough Sleepers. People who have been chronically living in our city streets and in our shelters tend to bear a very, very high burden of co-occurring medical, psychiatric, and substance use disorders. And if you really want to care for them, you have to learn how to co-locate the care if you're really going to care well. Now, here are your hosts, Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter. The mayor of Los Angeles has declared homeless emergency. In New York City, the mayor wants to take more mentally ill people from the streets to the hospital. In Washington, D.C., caseworkers just cleared dozens of unhoused citizens from a park right near the White House. Data shows that on any given night in the United States, about a half a million people are experiencing homelessness. Dr. Jim O'Connell is the subject of the New York Times bestselling book. It's titled Rough Sleepers. The new book focuses on his urgent mission to bring help and healing to homeless people. And it's written by Pulitzer Prize winner, Tracy Kidder. Dr. O'Connell or Dr. Jim, if we may, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Oh, I'm actually very thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, I think about people who are walking down streets all across the country and asking themselves if uh, our homeless problem uh, is getting worse. And if it is, uh, what caused the increase? Was it the pandemic or what, what do you have to say about the question? You know, first of all, I feel a little bit sheepish because I've long admired what you both have been doing and the community health center we all look to for guidance and inspiration has been yours. So let me start by just saying that and making it clear. And I'm a newcomer compared to the two of you. I think what's contributing to the growing numbers of homelessness, and it tends to fluctuate a little bit, but what continues to feed it, I think, is the things we all know all too well. There's a growing disparity in income. Uh, rents are getting very high. Um, finding new housing is expensive and difficult to do. Um, and the scale at which we need help it with both the rental units and with housing is really a scale that we haven't achieved yet. So I think as we work very hard, many many cities around the country are being incredibly creative, along with help from HUD and their state governments to find new housing, but the rate at which they can find new housing doesn't seem to be able to keep up with the numbers of people that are coming in newly homeless. So I think we have a big challenge. Yeah, I think I just saw in today's paper that the year over year cost for housing had increased 7.9%, probably creating more people who are facing uh, homelessness as well. That's correct. And, you know, I realize that medicine is what I know, and I think it's kind of complicated. But when I look at housing and the issues around housing with community development and, you know, all the rules and regulations, it's probably even more complicated than housing. So I am by no means an expert. But I do know that my friends that involved in doing housing projects in big cities like LA and San Francisco and Seattle, when you go through the whole process of, of trying to build new housing for, you know, formerly homeless people, you know, once you get through all of the, you know, all of the rules and regulations, the legal fees, the community things, it takes a very long time to create it. And by the time you get there, the average cost of housing, for example, of a unit in San Francisco now is about six or $700,000 by the time all is said and done marginally less in LA and about the same in other some other cities. So the the expense of creating new housing is kind of overwhelming and we need to understand that. 
Well, Boston is no stranger to those escalating prices or the shortage of uh, housing. And, and certainly you've been engaged with this work uh, for decades. And of course, you're joining us from Boston, where you're the president of Boston Healthcare for the Homeless, certainly a program that's well known to advocates around the state who try and address uh, the needs of people who are homeless. You're also an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. And I think it's probably safe to say that your practice is not exactly like the models of care that you were trained to when you were a medical student. Uh, I thought one of the uh, comments in the book that was really interesting was that your medical degree is often less valuable than your bartending skills, that bartending made you a good listener. One of our physicians told me the same thing years ago. But take yeah. us through uh, your treatment approach in in all seriousness. Certainly listening and communication is at the heart of what you've needed to do to build this program. But tell us about what it means to treat people in this context of homelessness. You know, I'm an accidental tourist in this world. I was planning to do something completely different. I wanted to stay hospital-based medicine, wanted to become a specialist in oncology. Um, and I had no inkling of what it meant to go to the community and try to take, take care of uh, populations that we were traditionally excluding from the mainstream. So when I got sent as, my, um, as a one-year, please go do this, by my chief of medicine, I remember getting to the shelter and realizing it was completely foreign to me, even though it was only six blocks away from where I had just finished being the senior resident in charge of the intensive care unit. And I kept thinking, how hard can a shelter clinic be after you do that? And it turns out it's immensely more difficult because you have so little control over so many factors. And I realized with some joy in the intensive care unit, you control lots and lots of things. Um, but not in the shelter. And I remember the first thing that the nurses who were already working there told me, they basically told me I had to relearn my how to approach people. I had to soak feet, for example, for about two months before they would let me do any doctoring. And I think the lessons I learned from the nurses back then are still the lessons that have sort of lived through all of these years. And that's it. You have to take time to get to know people who have been really disenfranchised and they are vulnerable, fragile, often um, very cherry of the system, mainstream system. So for me to go march in as I wanted to do and get their chief complaint and do, write a script and do all that within the first 10 or 15 minutes was just not possible. So I remember you know, that, that experience of how to take time to earn trust, you know, have coffee with your patients, talk to them, share a little bit, that, that kind of time had not been treasured or, or valued when we were in the hospital training. And we learned that was the only way to begin doing any kind of long-term continuity of really good care um, was to take a lot of time up front. So that, that more than anything, I remember, stands out. Our homeless people that put us together and designed the, um, they insisted that they really wanted continuity of care, that they didn't want fragmented care. They said their lives were already fragmented enough and people were coming and going. They wanted consistency in their doctors and their nurses. So they wanted to know when you know, if I saw somebody on Monday night, if they were sick on Thursday, they could call and I would answer the phone. You know, there's so many, so many challenges that you face. Certainly, certainly you also have a pretty good team with a, a wide range of skill sets, but take us through your own learning process about addiction and mental illness. I was clearly trained in medicine, you know, and I did not have much sense of social medicine or of addiction care or care for substance use disorders. And um, very little experience in caring for people with severe and persistent mental illness. They were always people we referred to another system to be cared for. As all of you probably know all too well, 
the people who have been chronically living in our street, our city streets and in our shelters tend to bear a very, very high burden of co-occurring medical, psychiatric and substance use disorders. And if you really want to care for them, you have to learn how to integrate the care, co-locate the care if you're mm-hmm. really going to do care well. And they were skills we had to learn. Like I, we now have a psychiatrist on, we have had for 20 years, a psychiatrist on our team whose panel of patients is the same panel that we all care for. And we've learned that has been critical. So when I'm seeing someone for their medical problems to know the psychiatrist that's with me on the team is a person that can see them if they need help. And then we also have a wonderful recovery coach who helps us integrate our substance use care into um, into the mainstream so we can do all of the offer all the medications for opioid and other dependencies and make sure people have easy access to that. And I think finally it was learning that you know you can't silo this care. You really have to learn how to integrate I've often thought that homeless people, when you reach out to take care of them, will teach you before we realize it ourselves the real weaknesses in our health, mainstream healthcare system. And that sure was one. The lack of integration and coordination was certainly one of them. I'm going to ask you in a minute to comment on this this uh, phrase, the rough sleepers, and, and what that means. When people see homeless people on the street, they often ask why there's shelters they could go to, there's housing vouchers in the city. And it is it is true in our experience that that some people will not go to a shelter. So what have you learned about why we have so many of what's called these rough sleepers? And what is a rough sleeper? All of my preconceptions turned out to be very wrong, as you can imagine. And the mayors and the governors for years have made sure there have been shelter beds for any adult that really wants one. And our clinics, our Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program, which is our FQHC, you know, has Years since the beginning, done clinics in all of the shelters. And so we thought we were getting out to be exactly right. what people were. And the first winter I was working, remember, I remember thinking, well, people are dying, but they're the people who are staying outside, not even coming into the shelter. Right. So as much as we thought we were doing a great job of reaching out to be where people were, we had to get to know this in Boston, a relatively small population of what they called themselves to be rough sleepers. They were sleeping the rough, but they are the folks who, they they will get upset if you say, why do you choose to live on the streets? Cause they'll look, laugh at me and say, I'm not choosing to live on the streets. Mm-hmm. I'm choosing not to go to a 500 bed shelter where I have to sleep with a lot of other people or where mm-hmm. it's gonna tell me when I can go to the bathroom and when I have to turn the lights off. Other reasons are a little bit more complicated. And the biggest lesson I had was one night it's freezing cold, it was minus 10 degrees. There was a, a northeaster predicted, and I was trying to get this poor man who had pretty pretty severe schizophrenia living under a bridge, trying to get him to come in. And we were, we had gotten to know him slowly, but he sort of put his hand up to me, and he when I said, "Come on, please come in," he went. He said, "No, I can't go in there." He said, "You don't understand. When I go into the shelter, I can't tell which voices are mine, but when I'm here under the bridge, I know the voice is mine, and I can I can contain it and control it." So I started to realize there are immensely complicated reasons why people or their individual reasons cannot go into a shelter. Mm -hmm. Um, By the way, we've learned that all of them, if you offer them a place to live, a house, they'll say yes, (laughs) but a shelter, they'll say no. You know, I wanna talk a little bit about the referencing uh, Mayor Adams, who's called for more homeless to be hospitalized. And so this whole issue of hospitalization, you know, we're talking to you from Middletown, Connecticut, which has the last psychiatric hospital in the state. So when we were starting back in the 70s, 
the deinstitutionalization was occurring. And so we had lots of patients coming out. And now there's this whole initiative around hospitalizing patients. I'm wondering, it's a complicated issue. I'm wondering uh, where you come down on the use of hospitalization for, for homeless. You know, I concur completely that it's a very complicated uh, situation. And I can think over the years of how much we've tortured over the decisions you make about whether you can just allow someone to make their own decisions and stay out in the bit of gold when they're vulnerable or when you take away their rights. Um, and what I, I can say is that, uh, and I would love to hear your, your experiences with the institutionalization. I didn't get to medical school to the late 70s when it already happened, but hadn't quite filtered into the streets yet. But um, what is our experience is that even when you bring somebody in, which is a very difficult thing to do against their will, the availability of treatment afterwards is so limited mm -hmm. that more often than not, that person ends back up on the street after several days or several weeks without the long-term care I think they really need and deserve. So I'm always hesitant to talk about committing people unless we know what's on the other side, that there is a real plan for treatment afterwards. And I think that's the big gap in the system, as you're saying it now. We've, during deinstitutionalization, we lost from 800,000 beds in the country down to less than 200,000. And now when we bring somebody to the emergency room, there's really no place for them to go. They often will be committed and, and hang out or languish in the emergency room for days before they can find any place to go. And often by that time, they're ready to be discharged. So I think we have a challenge as a country I think, first of all, I think Mayor Adams is absolutely correct to point to the problem. This is a terrible problem. When I think of the people we see night after night who, right. you know, have thought disorders and are outside very vulnerable, living what I think are really difficult lives um, because of a thought disorder, not because of um, a, a real choice. Mm -hmm. And you think you really want to do whatever you can to help that person. But mm -hmm. that means you have treatment options. Mm -hmm. um, and so we only do it on rare occasions now when we know someone is in imminent danger of harm to themselves or others. And we do it trying hard to work with the emergency room and everyone in the Department of Mental Health to make sure that, that person has a treatment plan on the other side. But it is a really, really difficult problem. I learned my lesson when I've been working on a van that goes out at nighttime. Every night it goes out from nine at night till five in the morning, run by these amazing people from Pine Street Inn mm -hmm. with money from the State Department of Public Health. And they've gotten to know everybody outside and they serve, the van serves soup and sandwich and blankets. They did, homeless people didn't want a medical van. They wanted something. That could, right. I've been riding on that for years and learning how to, you know, with the, the help of these folks to get to know people slowly, give them soup and get to know them. And I remember one woman who we tried hard. She was very crusty and really tough, but we worked hard. And finally, she started taking soup from us and a blanket. And we thought that was really good. She was living on a stoop. And one day she would, you know, something happened and the police had to commit her against her will. And I didn't see her till about two years later. I was at a meeting in the South Shore House. And there she was looking really together, dressed literally on the board of one of the shelters at that point. And I went up and I wanted to hug her. And I said, wow, you look great. It's been so long. And she turned and looked at me and she said, get away from me, you bastard. She said, you left me out there for 10 years and mm -hmm. never did anything. Wow. So I always balance, you know, I don't know what is yeah. the right thing to do. And I think we should all, you know, drop down the, you know, the, the tenor of it all and try to understand this is a tough argument. We should all yeah, be discussing right. a little humility. Yeah. yeah.
Uh, wow, that is that is a great story. And maybe I can pull a few threads together. Your your patient who was under the bridge who said, no, I'm not going to a shelter, but if he gave me a place to live, I'd come out from under this bridge. And I was thinking that something that the COVID pandemic presented to us uh, was that all of these large congregate shelters uh, suddenly, which have always been intolerable to me to see them, you know, 20, 30, 40 men sharing a dormitory room, they suddenly were untenable from the public health department's perspective too. And where was their space? Well, there was space in hotels, Super 8 being one of my uh, my most favorite. These hotels were taken over by the uh, systems of care and the health department, at least in Connecticut, and became the most civilized, comfortable, kind of logical place for people to be sheltering one person to a room or two people to a room uh, that the most that we'd seen. And I was 100% convinced when the pandemic ended that that model would persist. But I'm really curious what your experience was throughout COVID. How did it change things for our homeless population? Did it make it better in some ways because we had to protect them and protect the population, I suppose, from them as well? COVID, uh, we are still, I think, suffering from the lingering effects of COVID, just from a how we approach life point of view. But uh, in Boston, you know, where we have shelters, some of our shelters are not, you know, many of them, like Pine Street Inn was four or 500 beds, you know, and the, the city shelter was about 400 beds. So we were panicked when COVID came, that once anyone with COVID got into that, it would be a nightmare. Um, and what we found is when one person with COVID was in the shelter, we needed to get them somewhere. And we didn't have the advantage of hotels the way you did. I looked with great admiration and respect with, with Connecticut and California, where they really did really creative hotels. We couldn't do that in Boston. I don't think, I don't know what the story was. So we had to come up with other ideas, but isolating somebody uh, during COVID, we learned a lot. Um, two, one is we learned that COVID sort of was a great equalizer. Everybody in the in city was equally affected. And so there was a lot of empathy maybe toward homeless people that had not been done before. But then there was a difficulty of if you're if you have no money and you're living on the edge in homelessness and you need to be isolated or quarantined, it's impossible if you don't have food and money and more than just the shelter. So we learned a lot about the needs of homeless people. And I think that was really good. People started to understand how complicated and difficult this was. Um, a, a good story to come from COVID though, is what we found is that 40% of everybody in the shelters got COVID. So it was along with one of the city in Massachusetts, the highest incidence of COVID, but we did the vaccinating ourselves. Mm -hmm. And much to our surprise, there were very few people who refused the vaccine. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And I think they had a very clear idea among themselves as a community of how to, that they needed to protect each other. And it was striking to us where you didn't run into any of the issues I thought we were gonna run into. Some of that I think was because the nurses they know and the doctors they know were giving them the shots. It wasn't some stranger coming in. Um, but I do know that it was, it's a real sense of community that most of us don't appreciate mm. exists within the homeless population. Mm. Thinking, uh, thinking of things that we don't appreciate, uh, you started off by noting in San Francisco that the cost of a unit of housing is 600,000 plus. And uh, you know, I ha had the opportunity of chairing a housing authority and would always tell uh, my friends that, you know, you know, why not just build housing? It is very expensive and we simply don't have the 
resources to do it, nor do we have the uh, right sizing for Section 8 uh, that we need to have at, and at a price point that's going to build housing. But I'm sort of interested in two other things. One, the tiny house movement and what your thought is about that. And then also just sort of the, you've mentioned four or five cities, but I didn't hear Houston, which seems to me to have probably one of the best success rates for doing that. Houston has one of the most liberal planning and zoning regulations in the United States. What are your thoughts about this structural reform that needs to take place so that we can start to do, in addition to the support services, which you all have done just a fantastic job in, in developing and being a role model for. You know, there are lots of really creative people working on this problem overall. Um, and, you know, in Boston, they've done some immensely creative thing. And, and I think we're, we're starting to see progress be made to bringing the numbers down. But it is painful in, in places like, you know, LA or San Francisco, Boston, there are very complicated community processes you have to go through before you can get something approved. And there's a lot of zoning variances you have to do and a lot, you know, like you have to have enough parking spots per, per unit. Um, and you realize all of those things while done with all the best intentions to protect the citizens also mitigate against the ability to build very low income housing um, in any kind of density. Um, what I, I've been fascinated by Houston, they've done extraordinary things, but it is true. If I owned a piece of land in Houston right now and I wanted to build a shelter, I could just do it tomorrow. Right. If I tried to do that in Boston, it would take, as we've already <laughs> experienced, about four and a half years to even get to, to, to breaking the ground. So that, um, you know, that sort of gives you the, the, the uh, you know, the, the, the cities that have done a lot to protect each other with zoning and stuff like that also then suffer a lot when it comes time to low-income housing. So I think we have to figure out how to bring all of those together. And I, I'm, I'm more deeply admiring of you now to know that you were part of a housing authority because that those issues come up and they are so complicated and so difficult. And I think we all as a society have to come together and figure out how do we break through this logjam and come up with something reasonable that protects everybody's concerns. Well, Dr. Jim, I know that uh, you are probably connected to everybody around the country who's engaged uh, with this issue, but I was surprised to learn that uh, the United States is really for the first time devoting funds and resources specifically to the issue of homelessness in rural areas. The focus has really been on urban areas. What, what do we know or do you have any insights into the unique challenges of helping those who are homeless in rural America? I don't have any unique insight, but I have, you know, I have been with friends who work in rural areas and I realize where I can go down to Pine Street Inn six blocks away and see two or 300 people, they will take, you know, two weeks to be able to see that number of people because of the spread out uh, area. So there are very different challenges for urban homelessness from rural homelessness. And I think we have a lot to learn from, from our colleagues, for example, that have worked the, in the, uh, on the reservations, for example, where we've long had community workers, when I say that, and public health nursing that goes out into the hills and sees people. There are models there that, you know, we could probably learn a lot from. One of the, one of the issues that confounds everybody, just to put it, is that when you step back and look at the numbers, big numbers, you know, if you look at the, the main urban citizens in the country, that's about 80 to 85% of all homeless people. And they, 
other numbers, even though they're significant, are smaller in in respect to that. So it's always been difficult to get funding to go to the smaller places, which needed equally much, just that they're not as visible as the big city places. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your team. You've built a really incredible network of medical alliance employees, 400 serves 11,000 homeless. Just a little bit about the struggle to sort of keep operations alive. I I don't think people realize just doesn't come from heaven, uh, but it takes a a lot of work, a lot of partnerships. But you've also attracted people who believe in your mission of providing dignity and respect uh, to people who are facing difficult times. Tell us a little more uh, about your your team. Sure. And I would, you know, sort of put the mirror up to the two of you and say, you more than anyone know what this struggle is all about, (laughs) about behind the scenes to provide the funding to allow your clinicians to do the kind of work that you need to do to care for these very vulnerable populations. But I would say, you know, it uh, it was difficult for me because I wasn't, you know, as a doctor, I didn't know anything about the uh, financing of these things. And in truth, which you would appreciate, we were a a grant from the Robert Johnson Foundation back in 1985. So we had this four years worth of grant money. We didn't even have a finance department. I used to be able to write a, a, you know, a two page thing to the foundation at the end of the year saying we saw this number of people in this many places. And then um, come 1988, that granting grant funding ended. And I remember being panicked about what are we going to do? We've got this program going, but no money. And uh, then we were grandfathered in under OBRA 87 or something like that to become an FQHC. And so we all of a sudden had to think of ourselves as we needed a finance department. We had to learn how to bill Medicaid. We had to learn how to you know, look at our visits in in ways of, you know, how do you produce revenue to keep us going? And we always knew that that would never be enough revenue to really allow us the time we needed to be people. So we also had to figure out how to get the grants and the foundation money to balance it out. You know, those were 100 plus hour weeks for years trying to figure out the foundation on which the funding came from. You know, Massachusetts has a remarkably wonderful, creative and generous Medicaid program who really feels and has over the years, who really feel dedicated to making sure they reach to the the real Medicaid population. We were expanded, as you know, under Romney care back in the 1990s, late 1990s, so that homeless people essentially all became insured. And that allowed us to continue to build. And then the other, there were two other challenges. One, we had to be part of the of the shelters where we are guests. So we're guests in, you know, these 30 some shelters where we run the clinics from every day to once a week, depending on the size of the shelter. Um, And then we also were mandated by the homeless people who are many of whom are on our board now to stay part of the hospital community because the homeless folks in Boston anyway, knew when they got very sick, they ended up in one of the big academic hospitals and they wanted their doctors and nurses to be involved in their care. So we had to stay part of the hospitals, be part of the shelters, and then get funding from the city, the state and the feds. So it was this kind of learning to be a partner um, with all of them. And I think the years of, you know, just doing our work and then appealing to them is what I think helped us out along in the long run. It's really about a collaborative approach that's both public health and medicine. And we had to be, you know, integrated with the substance use care and with, in our, in our state, the Department of Public Health does substance use disorders, Department of Mental Health does the mental health issues and then Medicaid does the medical stuff for the most part. So we had to learn to bring all of those together. But as I look back now, 
it seems simple, but it was incredibly difficult. <laughs> and I don't talk about that very much, but that's the legacy we have, I guess. That's great. We, we remember some of those transitions well from our own history. And Dr. Jim, you're an inspiration uh, to all those who provide health care to persons who are homeless and all those who are working to end homelessness. And I'm so glad that Tracy Kidder has uh, captured your work so wonderfully uh, and, and really brings to people the hope that you bring to Americans who face all these challenges. So thank you for joining us and thank you to our audience. Uh, there's more online about conversations on healthcare, including a way to sign up for email updates and our web address is chcradio.com. Dr. Jim, thank you so much. Continued good luck with your work. Thank you both uh, for being such heroes for so long. I appreciate it. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded in the Knowledge and Technology Center studios in Middletown, Connecticut, and is brought to you by the Community Health Center, now celebrating 50 years of providing quality care to the underserved, where healthcare is a right, not a privilege. CHC1.com and chcradio.com.